Good afternoon, church. Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are well and keeping warm. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. If you just walked in and did not catch Eric, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 10 through 17 this afternoon. And so while you open and load your Bibles and get your pens and paper ready, let me begin by praying, and we'll dig into our time. Heavenly Father, we begin by thanking you for this afternoon. You are so good to us, and you do good. As a result, may it be your goodness that leads us to exalt the name of Jesus today. Father, may we ready our hearts to receive your word so that it may bear fruit in our lives. Don't just bring conviction, but bring about change in us, Lord. May we give you all the glory and our praise this afternoon. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week, I read an article from USA Today, uh, and here's how it opened up. This is not on your notes, so you'll just get to listen. It begins by saying, The rich tradition of the Dallas Cowboys has struck again. For all of the hype and glory that has spanned decades for the NFL's most popular franchise, you can't forget this. No operation blows it with magnanimous playoff upsets quite like Jerry Jones's team. <laughs> now, I don't know who Jerry Jones is, but that opening statement sounds like it hurt. In fact, I know it hurts because on Monday I was at Costco. I was filling up my truck and I overheard this dude who's filling up his truck, and he's on the phone, and this dude, no joke, goes on to say this. I don't know who he's talking to. He goes on to say, we should have just gone to church instead of watching the game yesterday. It would have been better for us if we had just gone to church. I also learned this week that the Dallas Cowboys have the most loyal following in all of the NFL, which I found interesting because I'm in a group chat with a couple of other pastors, right? And after the Cowboys lost last week, one goes on and posts on the group chat, and he goes on to say, so guys, where do we go from here? Elsewhere online, a friend of mine posted, this is not a pastor, but elsewhere online, a friend of mine posts after the loss, after 30 years of consistent disappointment, I'm over this. People have some serious allegiance issues with the Dallas Cowboys or whatever football team they fancy. 
I'm, I'm sure you've seen the posts outside of people's houses, right, that has like two logos of teams and it's this cracked line and at the bottom it reads, a house divided. I've normally seen that post when it comes to UT Austin and uh, the Texas Aggies and you see this line and it says, a house divided. One of our neighbors has that, whatever. All of this is very real. People will go to very great lengths in their allegiances and other causes. And this is exactly what's happening in the church at Corinth. In fact, if we had pulled up into the church at Corinth, it would say, welcome to the church in Corinth, dot, 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 a word of caution. We are a house divided. Divisions within the NFL and allegiances with other teams are one thing. I'm sure some of it is fun and games. And if you're like, no, it is serious, that's exactly the problem. But here's the thing. When it comes to the church, disunity leads to severe consequences. Disunity leads to severe consequences. And the church, the healthy church that unites around Jesus is the one that finds restoration and not ruin. If you're new or if you're just joining us, last week we began this series on 1 Corinthians. This church was planted by the Apostle Paul. Last week we briefly looked at Acts 18. You can find the history of the church in Corinth there. And one of the unique concerns about this church is that unlike other churches written to in the New Testament, they're normally fighting or pushing back against false teaching that is creeping up on the church or creeping from within the church. Corinth was something totally different for the most part. In fact, the church in Corinth was trying to fold cultural values and practices of the world into the church. Things that their culture valued, things that their city practices, customs that they held on to, they're trying to fold them in to the church. In the words of Doc Holliday, Corinth was very cosmopolitan. It was known for its gifting and value of eloquence and education, but it was also known for its immorality and its idolatry. The Christians in Corinth were embracing some of these immoral practices inside of the church. Last week, I gave you kind of an overview of the culture of Corinth, where they valued competition, and they valued uh, uh, everything from rhetoric, and they valued their intelligence, and who you're connected to, and self-authenticity, and individualism. But we didn't really cover a lot of the things that are happening within the church. And so some of those things are pretty wild. I mentioned on many occasions that if we could add a subtitle, to this series, it would be 1 Corinthians, Christians Gone Wild. And you would add, well, what does that look like? A ton of things were happening in the church, not just theological confusion or disputes. For instance, one dude is sleeping with his stepmom in the church in Corinth. The people are getting drunk at the communion table uh, in the church in Corinth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to say that they were involved in such immoral practices that even pagans wouldn't approve of them. That's how nuts they were, and they're Christians, like you and I. And so today in our passage, Paul is going to unpack some concerns. He's going to appeal to the Corinthians before digging into theology, before digging into cultural things. He's going to appeal to them for unity. Unity is something that is not only necessary in a healthy church, but it is longed for by all of us. 
The expression, can't we all just get along, might be funny, but it's almost always used as an appeal for unity, for peace. Things are stirred up. Things are in strife. Things are in conflict. I just want there to be harmony. I want there to be peace. I don't want there to be any more arguing. And so when we consider verse 10, Paul begins with this appeal to the Corinthians. So let's look at this, and here's how Paul begins. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there would be no divisions among you, that you would be united in the same mind and same judgment. I want you to notice that Paul's appeal comes with familial language. He calls them brothers. He doesn't impose a command or a demand on the Corinthians. He is appealing to them, yes, with urgency, but also with hope. And he wants them to unite under one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, Paul unpacks this threefold appeal to the Corinthians. He wants them to agree, he doesn't want there to be divisions, and he wants them to have the same mind and judgment. As we look at those, as we look at that portion, I want you to notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, I don't want there to be any distinctions among you within the church. He doesn't say that. One of the very first things that the Corinthians and you and I need to understand is that a healthy church can and will have distinctions, but a healthy church must not have divisions. If we're really going to be a healthy church, a community of believers, as Izzy says, a community of believers, of brothers and sisters in the faith, then it's okay knowing that you and I are going to have in-house debates. And sometimes we're going to have disagreements. Sometimes there's going to be a call for disagreements on what we call open-handed issues, issues that might be important and meaningful but are not essential to the gospel. We're not going to divide over them. We might have distinctions. We might have words to exchange. But we're not going to divide over those issues. See, the Corinthians don't understand this. And quite honestly, the church today still doesn't understand this. And you and I are not immune to this. So when Paul says, hey, I want you to agree, what Paul is saying is, I want you to agree on closed-handed issues, issues that are essential to the gospel. I want you to unite under Jesus, his word, and work. That's where I want you to agree on. And then he goes on to add, and I don't want there to be any division among you. In a moment, we're going to see that the Corinthians were creating factions. In other words, they were creating teams within the church. We'll get to that in a moment. But Paul says, I don't want there to be any division. The word division in verse 10 is where we get our word schism from. This strong split or division among people or parties. You see, divisions in the church create a lack of harmony. Divisions in the church are destructive to the health of a church. Churches have closed because of divisions. Churches have uh, split because of divisions. And that's what Paul is appealing to them on. I want you to agree on what is essential. I do not want you to divide. And I want you to have the same mind and the same judgment. That little phrase, the word for that could be, Paul is saying, I want you to be restored to one another. Again, this is an appeal to the essentials. Paul is not calling for uniformity. He's calling for unity. 
He's calling for a need for restoration. There are essential things that Christians must hold to. If you've ever been curious as to what those essential doctrines or beliefs are, this would be a place where something like creeds and confessions do us uh, a great deal of help because creeds and confessions will point us back to the pages of Scripture. Several years ago, we walked through the Apostles' Creed, and it was a really fun series. I would encourage you to go listen to that. We're not going to reference that series here for now. But the Apostles' Creed, if you know it or are familiar with it, walks us through core Christian beliefs, not our essentials. These are closed-handed issues. For instance, the Apostles' Creed begins by addressing uh, God. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, not three gods. There's one God. They are distinct in their function, but we believe in one God and three persons. The Apostles' Creed walks through creation, and in particular that God created us male and female. In his likeness, he created us. That's Genesis 1.27. Christians will disagree and argue over that, particularly within the culture. You've been hearing about it, whether it's social media, maybe you know individuals who go through it, where individuals will say, I'm a man, but I think I become a woman. A woman can become a man. The Bible would say, no. When we look at Genesis 1.27, in his image, he created them, man and woman. It's called the Imago Dei. We are created in his likeness. The Apostles' Creed unpacks the incarnation of Jesus, that God entered into human history and took on flesh. He was born of a virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. It speaks to his death and resurrection, that Jesus accomplished our redemption on the cross, that he restored us back into relationship with the Father. It speaks about his ascension and judgment that Jesus ascended into heaven and that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. As a result, the church now exists, and people get kind of trippy when it says the Catholic church. It's Catholic with a little c, universal, and there are many expressions of it, like the church in Corinth or Storehouse McAllen. As a result, we have not only been reconciled to the Father, but we are reconciled to one another, the communion of the saints, and that one day we will enter into glory. Something like the Apostles' Creed and other creeds like it will point us back to the pages of scriptures on what is true. These are closed-handed, essential issues that we must be united around. They are essential to our doctrine and to our devotion, the way in which we live. Are there secondhand issues? Absolutely. We're going to go to get into them in this letter. But before that, we must first unite and center ourselves on the truth of God as the people of God. Our health is central to our lives being shaped by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul opens here by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of Paul. No, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity, and this is the last part in this section, unity is vital to the health of the church because it broadcasts a message 
to a watching world about what you and I believe about Jesus. That means unity is missional. It's in apologetic. It's a proclamation with our very lives. Unity aids us as we pursue holiness in a world or a culture that does not know Jesus. Unity is spoken about throughout the Scriptures. You and I need to wrap our minds around that. Unity grieves God. It grieved the Apostle Paul. For instance, when Jesus is praying, this is John 17. We did a short series on this last summer on praying like Jesus where we walk through the high priestly prayer. This is what Jesus says. I do not ask for these only, speaking to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me, that's us, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Is that unity? That they also may be in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Unity grieves God. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 19, the writer says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here's the last one. It's verse 19. One who sows discord among the brothers. Disunity breeds destruction, ruin, division, dissonance. So Paul's appeal to the Corinthians and to us is that unity is not simply for the purpose of harmony, but for holiness. It's what Paul, looked, it's what Paul was touching on last week, that you are sanctified, you are holy, you have been set apart Unity is not simply for harmony, but holiness. Next, Paul begins or continues to address unity by exposing improper allegiances within the church. This is found in verses 11 to 16. See, for the Corinthians, rather than being aligned through God's will, word, and work, they're embracing allegiances to specific church leaders, or in this case, specific uh, preachers that have made their way to Corinth. Verse 11. Paul says, I appeal to you for unity, for because it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Verse 11 shows us how Paul is learning about these divisions and these factions happening within the church, that it's coming from Chloe's people. Now, we don't know much about Chloe. There's a lot, or there's a couple of things that some scholars would say about Chloe. Some say that she was a faithful church member at Corinth, and maybe they met in her house. And so some other individuals from the church wrote to Paul. Others would say that she is one of Paul's friends who lives in Ephesus, and she has business associates in Corinth who attend the church in Corinth, and they are the ones writing to Paul. We don't know. All we know is that Paul got this message about these divisions happening within the church. And they're quarreling. They're fighting. They're going at it with one another, right? And so what is it that they're fighting over? Well, they're fighting over allegiances. They're fighting over teams. They're fighting and developing their factions instead of developing their faith. So verse 12, Paul writes, What I mean is that each one of you says, real quick, all of this is in the negative. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos or Cephas 
or I follow Christ. They're associating themselves with Christian, or they're associating themselves with preachers over the perfect preacher, Jesus. See, one of the values within the culture and city at Corinth was philosophy, eloquence, education, accuracy, access, self-validation. This was a prideful value in the city that they're bringing into the church, and their pride is causing divisions within the church because they rather be associated with these preachers as opposed to their allegiance or alignment with Jesus. And so for the one who says, I follow Paul, Andrew Wilson, he's a commentator. He, he groups this into four uh, categories. The one who followed Paul is the one who's saying, I follow the most spiritual leader, the one who's the most, the smartest, the one who's the most accurate, the one who's the most theological. Others would say, well, I follow Apollos. Apollos makes his debut in Acts 18. Uh, he preaches with eloquence and sophistication. He's the cool hipster, pastor, preacher, right? And so some people in Corinth are saying, I dig that guy. I like him. He's eloquent. He's smart. He's witty. He's funny. I'm going to associate with him. Some say, no, I follow Cephas, the serious one. Cephas is Peter. And so they're saying, man, I want to follow, I want to, I want to follow Peter. Why? Because Peter's one of the OGs. He went to University of Jesus Christ. He walked with Jesus, right? Did you hear that sermon in Acts 2? The a mega church like blew up after he preached. This guy knows what he's doing, okay? I'm going to follow Peter. Some would say, I follow Christ. And you would say, isn't that a good thing? They mean it with arrogance. They mean it as though, let me tell you how wrong you are, right? Have you ever seen that meme? It's like people from the 1700s, and it's someone looking over a balcony, superior, smug, arrogant, over like peasants, right? That's how these individuals are looking at those who say, I follow Cephas and Apollos and, and, uh, and, and Paul. Listen, at the end of the day, there are significant consequences when Christians do this. One of those consequences is that the church, the church loses her mission. Because no longer are we making disciples of Jesus, now we're making disciples of other preachers or leaders or your favorite Christian X, whatever you want to call it. Additionally, what ends up happening is that rather than church pursuing humility and holiness, the church falls and is crumbled by her pride. When the church does this and loses sight of Jesus and fails to unite under Jesus, the church distorts the message of the gospel. It confuses people who don't know Jesus. When this ends up happening, when an individual or an entire church builds the church or their faith under an individual or individuals apart from Jesus, people get hurt and they cause hurt. Think about celebrity pastors. That's been a really big thing over the last couple of years. Individuals who are highly regarded, they're on the media, they have tons of followers, and when they have fallen, whether they're accurate in their theology or not, whether they have fallen, what has the consequence of that been? People have walked away from the faith. People have been 
hurt by them, but also part of that is because some people uh, built their faith around that individual instead of Jesus. That's a consequence when we unite our faith under a specific leader or preacher or teacher instead of Jesus. We don't need superstars. We need servants. How does this apply to you and I? You can insert your thing. I follow X, I follow Y, I follow Z. You can insert your thing. Some of you are huge with your theological camps or Christian leaders. Matt Chandler said this, Johnny Max said that, Johnny Pipes said this, but you can't tell me anything about Scripture. You make a big deal about theological camps, and that's wonderful, but you actually haven't read through your Bible. I've met individuals that can quote me, dead guys, and that's wonderful because I love reading them, but they can't tell me what the gospel is. We're not immune to what the Corinthians have gone through. And you're like, I don't really read dead guys. You know, I don't really know other preachers or, or teachers. Insert whatever it is you want. Political parties. When people unite under political parties, whichever one, uh, they unite under political parties, what ends up happening? Not only do they hold them above Jesus, right, but divisions are caused within the church. Social concerns are the same thing. Personal preferences within the church. Our, or better yet, let me just say it this way, immaturity in the gospel always leads to factions within the church. Always. And so Paul responds to this. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is saying Jesus is not divided. Your theology camp or your political party does not redeem you. Only Jesus can. Your social issues are not your savior. Jesus is. One theologian says it this way. Your cause may produce good things, but it cannot be crucified for you. Your preferences are exactly that. They are preferences. Our complaints instead of our contribution is more about us wanting to be at the center than uniting around Jesus at the center of our lives. And for what? James answers this. It's up on the screen. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What you want to get out of it, what you want from it, what it's going to produce for you, how it's going to make you look, how you're going to be validated, how you can make a big deal about yourself. And that's what's happening at Corinth. I find it a little amusing in verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, uh, or Gaius so that 
no one may see, say that you were baptized in, in my name, right? In other words, people are more uh, uh, worried or concerned about who baptized them rather than the name in which they were baptized under, right? And so Paul has kind of a senior moment here, right? He's like, I didn't baptize anybody. Wait, no, Chris, okay, Crispus, I, I did, yeah, and then Gaius, he's cool, and then uh, it's almost like whoever's next to him is like, hey, you baptized like an entire household. He's like, right, I did. I did do that. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But then he adds, beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's go back to Jesus, right? <laughs> a healthy church is aligned under the word and work of God for them. And so finally, verse 17, Paul reels them and us back in on what is essential for unity, on what is essential for restoration, and that is the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's really cool because that's kind of a slap in the face to the culture, because Paul didn't come with eloquence, something that they valued. Paul just came with the words of Christ to them. But going back to the first half of verse 17, wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach. Look, he, he, he includes baptism because he's saying, look, it's a command from Jesus. When you get baptized, you're showing everybody what team you're on. But more than baptism, what is essential is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? More than who baptized you, it's about who you are baptized under, the name that you were baptized under. That is what we preach that God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death on the cross, was buried, and through the power of the Holy Spirit was raised from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell, and Satan. He ascended to heaven where he is currently, present tense, ruling and reigning, and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. Those who claim to be Christians are united by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Those who do not know Jesus, God is being and is extending his patience to you so that you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone by faith alone. This message of the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because sinners need to be told that they are sinners. You and I need to be told and reminded of that, but at the same time, it reminds us of what God has done for us in Christ. That we're not just forgiven, but called saints. That's how Paul addresses the Corinthians in the opening passage. To all the saints. And listen, we did not possess this, uh, we did not possess being saints by some act of sainthood on our behalf, but it was because an act was performed for us on our behalf by someone else. If unity inspires peace, then it produces restoration. If unity is to be restored among the church, then restoration begins with repentance. Otherwise, it will lead us to ruin. 
The Corinthians aren't getting this. And they're allowing their pride to crumble them rather than seeing their need for humility and holiness. Are we, by way of looking at the Corinthians, able to see our need for humility? Are you and I able to humble ourselves so that we may pursue holiness, unity, and restoration? Or will it be our pride that crumbles us? Listen to Paul's words to the Philippians. I love this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. That's what he's writing to them. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can we humble ourselves so that we pursue holiness, unity, and restoration? Or will it be our pride that we're aware of that crumbles us? Restoration begins with repentance. Listen, allegiances can be fun to poke at. But here's what you need to know. At the end of the day, Jesus is the better and greater Dallas Cowboy. Jesus is the better theologian. Jesus is the perfect superstar who became a servant. There's only one true allegiance that the Christian stands firm on, and it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We unite around Jesus because he is the one who has restored us to the Father. All of the problems that we're going to walk through in 1 Corinthians, but beginning with this one, all of the problems that the Corinthians are experiencing among one another are because they first had a vertical problem, right? Their relationship with God. They first had a vertical problem and were unwilling to address it. They thought that if the horizontal, their relationships with one another, they thought that if the horizontal was fixed, then they'd be good. Let us learn from the Corinthians that every problem we might have with the church and with one another actually begins with our vertical relationship with Jesus. Once we can address that, once we humble ourselves to see that, then restoration can begin to take place. We don't need superstars. We have the one and only and the greatest one, but we do need servants. The church that unites around Jesus finds restoration, not ruin. Let's pray.
Father, as we close this portion of our time, may we recognize two things. First, our fallenness. Second, your faithfulness. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our great God and Savior, who has redeemed us and restored us to you. We confess, however, that he is sometimes the last person we unite under, even if we pursue unity. We confess our confidence in our own sufficiency, our habitual trust in our own wisdom, in overestimating our abilities and resources. Father, we confess that developing factions is often our heart's desire over the development of our faith. In discipling one another into maturity and walking with one another to where Jesus wants us to be. This afternoon, would you give us conviction to hold fast to our confession? Give us the grace to show charity to brothers and sisters in non-essential concerns. Give us strength in your spirit to change by pursuing humility and restore us to the joy of your salvation.